bum bum bottom 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 bum b
goes and he wanders through Los Angeles and eventually he arrives at a movie house and he walks into the theater and he buys a ticket for Singing in the Rain and we see him recognize his life's history in that film. There are scenes in Singing in the Rain that reflect moments of his life as they were depicted in Babylon and he becomes devastated and crushed. And then Damien Chazelle pulls the camera away from Diego Calva and it tracks all through the theater. And we see all these people in various ways, accepting and appreciating singing in the rain. And then the camera comes back up. We see Diego Calva, he's crying. And it's the Gene Kelly moment where he is singing in the rain. And, and he, he opens his eyes and he takes in the beauty of that sequence. And suddenly we get a montage of all these great sequences from Hollywood movies. You see Wizard of the uh, Wizard of Oz, we see like uh, uh you know The Man in the Moon, we see um Daffy Duck, all these great classic moments from Hollywood movies. And then halfway through that montage, just as Justin Hurwitz is like Voodoo Mama score kicks into full gear, we get a clip of the word fin, meaning the end. And then after the clip of that fin, we start to see sequences from CGI movies. We get clips of Tron. We get clips of Avatar. Yes, Avatar is in Babylon. We get clips from Terminator 2, Jurassic Park. And you realize we are seeing how, like sound came in and destroyed the silent era, the digital revolution came in and destroyed our notions of what movies were before that moment. And you realize what Damien Chazelle is trying to get to is this notion that Film is technology and te technology is always evolving. And with that evolution comes a destruction of the past. And we all think we're living in the house and it's our mansion and we rule over it. But the house is always on fire as Gene Smart says at one point in Babylon. And the thing that you are working in is burning around you and, and, and is being destroyed as you're trying to hold on to it. And like my big takeaway from Babylon is it's Damien Chazelle saying, get ready for AI art. AI is here. We are gonna get movies written by AI. We're gonna get movies directed by AI. And movies are not going to be the movies you thought they were, but they will still continue without you. And it is a devastating realization and I'm struggling with that notion, but I love that Babylon and Damien Chazelle are also kind of wrestling with it. And that's my takeaway of Babylon. The idea of watching a movie written by AI, or God forbid, reading a comic yeah. written by AI or reading- Or uh, illustrated by AI, yuck. It makes me, it makes me feel sick. It makes me feel angry. We are anti-AI art on Comic Book Couples Counseling. Because I'm not interested in- um, Removing the human equation. It's plagiarism. It's straight up plagiarism. Having a program go and steal influences yes. from humanity, put them in their little blender and yes. puking them out for us to spend money on, just, it gets under my skin. Gross, it's revolting. But also, we may not have a choice in it. Right. And, and it is a tragedy, it is a horror show, and that's what Babylon is. It is showing how when sound came in, it was a monster movie. And everyone was ignorant of the fact that devastation was on the horizon. And those that had an inkling of it did nothing about it. And, you know, silent films are dead. 
To me, that's not like a direct comparison, though. Going from silent movies to sound versus going from human written scripts to AI written sure. scripts. It's not like the exact same thing. Where you look at Margot Robbie's character, she was an, an amazing silent actress, but once sound was created, there was just kind of a barrier of entry for her because yes, she's an amazing silent actress, but now she also has to have the compounded skills of being able to sound good and hit marks and all of this stuff. And um, and like the um, the market of her talent kind of closed on her, where because it was replaced by other actresses who could do the two things. Where I feel like, um, like we're not. Mm, I'm I'm changing my mind as I'm speaking because like <laughs> the way it, yeah. I relate to it is I'm a musician I'm a singer I'm paid to go places and sing in person, and you know and. My singing has been streamed. I've done hours of talking onto a microphone. If someone wanted to, maybe one day they'll come up to me and they go like, we we have all of your pitches. We have your intonation. We would like to license your voice. We can Luke Skywalker you in The Mandalorian right now. And then my lifetime of building virtuosity is all of a sudden like that door is closed. Maybe the next virtuosity is not the person who can stand and sing, but the person who can create the AI that can imitate so perfectly a real musician making Sooner real music. Rather than later, we're gonna get the first AI movie. You know, somebody like Blumhouse will put it out. And what it will be is a film that has been written by AI, and then a writer comes in and edits it and chips away at it, right? Mm -hmm. And I can see AI becoming that tool, right? It'll be like spell check. Make me a scene between two cops arguing in the style of Michael Mann. They can do it already. Yeah. And, and it's, I, I hate it. I, I hate, hate it. it. But so now watch me like a, like a gymnast. Yes. I am going to segue. Yes. Back to Lazarus Planet yes. and the theme of our conversation. So we had two conversations discussing Lazarus Planet. We talk about Planet Alpha with Mark Wade, And then we also talk about. Assault on Krypton. With Nicole Maines and Leah Williams. And our, our conversation gravitates to what is the difference between having technological powers, having, having science powers, yeah. having grounded to earth and reason powers versus having magical powers. And the comparison Mark Wade makes is scientific powers are powers of control. There is this idea of like, if I completely understand something, and I can break something down into its component parts, then I can have power over it. Yeah. Where magic powers are the powers of submission. I don't understand it completely, but I have this kind of faith in it and faith in myself that I can become an instrument to a power and I can direct it. So to me, I go like, AI is coming. It's going to happen. Am I going to try to science it and go like, maybe if I can break down AI to its component parts, I can then understand and have power over it. Or do I just submit to it and go like, it is going to happen. This magic is going to happen. Am I going to become a channel for it? Or am I going to 
fight it and let it have power over me. I don't know. I don't, you know, it's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated and it's absolutely agonizing. And that's where Babylon left me. And I appreciate having that cinematic outlet to think over these things. And I appreciate having this podcast so we can talk them out as well. We're not going to solve anything today. That's for darn sure. But Lazarus Planet. Great segue, Lisa. It's the new DC Comics event that launched last week with Alpha Issue 1. Mark Wade is spearheading it along with Gene Lewin Yang. It is spinning out of his Batman versus Robin series where Lazarus Island exploded. The Lazarus volcano erupted and spewed out all this Lazarus resin all over the globe and is basically turning all the magic on this planet upside down. All the magic and all the technology. And it's a great event for bringing in characters that don't necessarily always get celebrated in these kind of event stories. Like, obviously, Batman and Robin are right there from the beginning, but also... You know, Shazam plays a key role, Blue Devil. And because Gene Lu and Yang is there, Monkey Prince. And Lisa and I love Monkey Prince. We do. And it feels like Monkey Prince becomes an even bigger and better character because he's being recognized within a DC event like Lazarus Planet, right? Like he is going to stay because he is essential to what's going on in the DC universe. And I'm excited for DC to play with Monkey Prince a little bit more. What intrigues me about Lazarus Planet is that the instigator of the badness. Yeah. Like this Lazarus resin getting everywhere and creating this level of chaos creates an opportunity for each character to face what actually scares them. Mm. You know, because the only like across the board truth is that nothing is predictable anymore. So the powers of science where you're like, I can count on this happening every single time is not present. And the power of submission, I can submit to the magic and I understand and I can predict, like I know I know it so well, I can, I can know what is happening is not there either. So everybody is severed from the thing that they think makes them a superhero. Yeah. They have to dig a little deeper but then what actually makes me a hero? Is it the power? Is it science? Is it magic? Or is it me? Yeah. And Mark Wade does this really wonderful setup where any writer who comes after him, like Nicole Maines or Leah Williams, can really do whatever they want with that very simple setup. And that's what they achieve with their characters of Dreamer and Power Girl in Assault on Krypton. Now, we've had Mark Wade on the show in the past. He was talking about the Humanoids anthology, the history of science fiction. So much fun to talk science fiction with Mark Wade. I highly recommend you go back and listen to that episode if you have not. Link in the show notes. But it was so great to have him back and to talk superheroes, to talk Batman, to talk Damian Wayne, to talk their dynamic. And how he approaches an event story like Lazarus Planet. What do they mean for him as a creator who has done so many of these things? Just a heads up, the Gullicksons come in super hot. Yes. We both, um, about halfway through the interview, had in our heads the question, why am I shouting? <laughs> our energy level is very high because we're so excited to talk superhero event comics with Mark Wade. So you do need to be warned a little bit. There's also a super cringy moment. So I went into this conversation 
going like, okay, whatever you do, do not say the word crisis. Don't <laughs> this say, moment's it was, not that cringy, Lisa. It, it, like, it has been replaying in my head like like an embarrassment from middle school, where it's kind of like that... Um, oh, you're, you're being way too hard on yourself. You do use the word crisis, not in a DC crisis kind but of way. But to mean the, the word problem. Yeah. But like, you know that kids in the hall sketch, like... Don't, don't put, put salt, salt in your, in your eyes? eyes? That was what happened. And don't I say just, crisis, don't say crisis, say crisis! <laughs> it was really... I, I love that moment, Lisa. The <laughs> listeners are going to love that moment. They're going to have a really good time with this conversation with Mark Wade. We're going to present that first. After we wrap up that chat, then we'll have a little introduction to our interview with Nicole Maines and Leah Williams about Assault on Krypton. Hopefully we didn't trip on our own shoelaces too much. Hopefully Mark Wade will come back. He'll come back, Lisa. <laughs> He'll come back. Uh, but on that note, let's get to it. Mark Wade, what's up? Mark, welcome back to Comic Book Couples Counseling. How are you? I'm good. Good to be here, sir. We're thrilled to have you. We're here to talk about Lazarus Planet. Uh, but before we do that, we wanted to talk a little bit about how you set things up with Batman versus Robin number four. Right. We love the relationship between Damien and Bruce. It's such a unique dynamic. And I'm wondering how you approached that relationship initially and how your feelings for them have evolved since you've tackled those characters? They actually did evolve. I, as much as I was a fan of what Joshua Williamson did in the Robin book, and I, and still am, um, and read all that stuff because I was with Damien from day one, back when Grant introduced him in the back of my head, he was still the arrogant kid. And as I wrote Batman Robin for, or, or as I wrote Batman versus Robin, the, mini, the miniseries, I realized that no, there's more to that character than that. There's there's a way to marry what Josh did with maturing that character with the original vision of that character. There's still room in Damien to be arrogant. There's still room in Damien to, in the back of his mind, look at Batman every once in a while and go, you know, that's my job. You know, I'm just waiting for you to die. And and that is not as omnipresent as it was in the Grant days, but it's it's still kind of in the back of his head a little bit. And Batman knows that. And that's what makes it a great dynamic. Because Batman's never had a sidekick or a Robin that was looking at him like, you know, like he was a, a Christmas turkey, you know, <laughs> ready to be served up, you know, and 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 you know, stroking the knives and the the forks and ready to carve into them. There were so many cool revelations in Batman versus Robin number four. My favorite was between Batman and Damien when Nezha has possessed Damien and they're fighting. Batman is of course narrating, and he mentions like when I adopted Damien. I knew he was already this highly capable, well-trained individual. And then on top of that, I taught him everything that I know. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that thing was mutual. I thought that Damien was sharing with me completely. And it turns out that Damien has been withholding. And I think that uh, we don't have kids, but as a person who is a child of a parent, that is part of growing up is withholding from your parent what you are fully capable of and yeah. and keeping a few things for yourself. So I, what what was it like 
coming to that revelation as a writer going like, oh, this would be the dynamic between them. And then, you know, orchestrating that little gut punch of a moment. That is a very good observation. And it was in the back of my head because I, you know, it, it, at first it was just, oh, Damien hasn't had time to teach him this stuff. But as I dove into it and, and dug down, I hit upon the same thing you were just saying, which is that, you know, all of us, especially as teenagers, remember, you know, you you love your parents, you know, but you want to believe you've got secrets in your hip pocket that they don't know. There's some power that that gives you that in, in, a, in a relationship where basically the other person has all the power. That is a way of, of you having a little bit of power to yourself. So where Batman versus Robin leaves those two, issue four leaves those two with the Lazarus volcano exploding, but Neza having attacked and Batman taking the blunt of his attack and rescuing Robin. Why was it important to set up that specific confrontation going into Lazarus Planet Alpha? Because I knew that in Lazarus Planet Alpha, Neza was going to change tactics. Before, he's been remote controlling characters from a distance. He doesn't really have that ability right this moment because he is weakened as well. So putting him in literally into Batman's body to become Batman gives us two things. I mean, first off, it's a, it's a cool visual. And secondly, as we move on to Lazarus Planet Omega and then Batman Robin 5, Batman versus Robin 1 through 4 have been, you know, Batman and Robin is the villain. And now we've flipped the script on that. So in Batman Robin 5, you know, Robin is our point of view character. And Batman is the antagonist. We were talking about Batman being able to make the sacrifice play and lose his life defending his son is yeah. like the perfect, like have have your cake and eat it too situation because he gets to die for his son and he's like still there for the next Father's Day card. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Yes. Some some people, I would say silly gooses. Mm -hmm. might say that having something like a Lazarus pit, having access to resurrection undercuts and undermines stakes. You, I'm sure you have a canned answer for that, have, but it's also a conversation I never get tired of. I'm happy to have that conversation because the dumbest cliffhangers are, oh my God, Batman's dead. No, he's not. His name is on the cover of the book. He's not dead. You know, those are terrible cliffhangers. The The better cliffhangers are, okay, Batman is on the edge of death. What the hell do we do now? How do we fix this problem is a much more interesting cliffhanger than will this person live or not? Of course, they're going to live. So this is why Batman didn't die, you know, on page 38. Then mm -hmm. you get it earlier in the issue because I'm not fooling anybody. You know, it's not like, I mean, Chip Zdarsky still has a job. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the last really key moment from Batman v, v. Robin that informs how I read Lazarus Planet is the moment that Batman has when he puts on Dr. Fate's helm, mm -hmm. which has been fueled by the powers of dozens of magic users. And he gets to see the world through magical eyes. Right. Right. And his confidence comes from this place of like expertise over some right. things. Like he's right. a, he knows he's a man of limitations, but it, now that he knows that everything is imbued with magic. He, he has experienced it and seen it. 
Yes. He and seen it and knows that he can never really have full power over it because right. he has this personal limitation of I, I am not a submissive. I can't submit to anything. I can't submit to what you need to and magic is all about submission. Yeah. And and so um he kind so Batman is in this place where he like he goes like, okay, well, in actuality, I can't really have power over anything because if right. I don't have power over magic, I he he has now been faced with the level of chaos he is actually living in. And mm -hmm. how little control he actually has. And then we have that for every single superhero in the DC uni universe with Lazarus Planet. And mm -hmm. this magical rainstorm that is screwing up the laws of science as well as the laws of magic. Literally every single superhero is scared because we yes. are all ultimately afraid of chaos. What was the inspiration for the crisis that is... The Lazarus planet. I, I know I use the word crisis, crisis. is loaded. <laughs> I use a loaded word. Yeah. I, just like a the, problem. The problem. The problem is the yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was the inspiration of finding something that put every single superhero on their heels? I tell you what, that was a perfect marriage of creative and editorial because mm -hmm. the original pitch for all of this was simply a, a five issue standard size miniseries about Batman versus Robin and Batman having to investigate the world of magic. And that was two years ago. And I pitched that coming in the door at DC and we liked it and we were developing it. But at the same time, Josh was doing what he was doing at the Lazarus Island. And I was doing what I was doing with the devil Neza. And as we started to get into 2021, we saw how these things could all knit together. And it may have been Ben Abernathy. It may have been Paul Kaminsky. It may have been someone, someone else on editorial. And I should find out just to be able to give them credit for the idea of Lazarus volcano, for the idea of Lazarus planet, Lazarus Island exploding like that. Uh, and once that was presented to me as something I could use, oh, then the rest of it all just came together. I really wanted to do a story where science is just dead. Science is just useless to us at this moment. And now it's all about magic and how crippled we are by that. Lazarus Planet also allows you and the other writers to play with characters that don't often get the right. spotlight. And yeah. I know that's why we're excited. We're so thrilled to see Monkey Prince being incorporated he's, into he's an event the like best. this. He's, he's the one best. of our favorite new characters. But also thinking of him and going like, and he also shares a universe with Batman. It's like something to really yeah. wrap your mind around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what's it been like playing with that character? What's the appeal of Monkey Prince? And how have you been working with Jean Lu and Yang uh, uh, to expand on this idea of Lazarus Planet with that particular character? Very closely. I It was not originally planned when I started doing Nezha stuff in, in Batman, Superman, World's Finest, because I didn't really, this was, he was developing Monkey Prince around the same time. So we were just doing this independently. As we started talking, we realized that we were approaching the same mythology from different points of view. So let's intertwine this stuff. Let's, let's, let's work together on this. And Gene has been an invaluable resource on all of this. And it could not have been the story. It, it ended up being without Gene there to backstop me and to inform me and to be so generous with his time and his character. Cause man, monkey Prince, I'm with you. I love me some monkey Prince. Uh, he's funny. He's tragic. There's there's pathos there. There's comedy there. And he is a main player in Lazarus Planet, Omega, and in Batman Robin 5. You know, you, you've touched on a few things there, but what exactly is it about Monkey Prince that 
feels like uh, this is not the metaphor that I really think is appropriate, but I'm just going to use it. Like he feels like a hand grenade that's been thrown into a usual kind of event. Like he, he busts it up in a way that another character necessarily wouldn't. Well, he's the perfect foil for Damien. He's the perfect foil for Damien. That is a buddy comedy right there. Because Damien is all about control. Damien is all about knowing all the answers. Damien is no. Damien is about having a plan. And Monkey Prince's idea of a plan is to just jump in and hope for the best. And mm. so the the potential between the two of those is just so much fun. One of the things that really make these huge events so exciting is getting to see those characters where you go like, oh man. Uh, hey, look, Blue Devil. We haven't seen Blue Devil in a while. Yeah, exactly. Like I love when we find, oh, they really are like a dichotomy. So like, like Robin and Monkey Prince mm-hmm. or like, oh, these are like two birds of a feather and they didn't even know it. Like, I love the moment between Cyborg and Blue Beetle mm. where um, the Cyborg is like, you've got alien magic, I've got alien magic. Alien like, magic. Okay. like, yeah, so, so when you are, you know, putting together your little groups of superheroes for their different missions, mm-hmm. are you thinking character chemistry first? Like, it'll be fun to see these guys together. Or do you think function first and then you discover the chemistry in the in the playing? I think function first because for something like this, it, you know, mm-hmm. for a, a standalone story, completely different. But for something like this, where there are specific goals, specific missions, and so many characters to deal with. I think about function first, but that's less interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Once you get all those pieces in place, right, then the fun of writing is discovering stuff as you go. So do the foundational stuff first, figure out function first, and then as you write these characters, realizing, oh, yeah, that's right. Cyborg and Blue Beetle do have this in common. That's fun. And and it you wouldn't necessarily be able to do that with every group of every characters uh, of all characters, but in the DC universe in particular, I feel like I know these characters like the back of my hand. I feel like I know these characters better than I know my own family. So it's easy for me to find the commonalities that maybe not are always as obvious to other people. Thinking about like functionality, what is the function of these big events within the context of the DC universe, like what do they do? What are they for? And then like more specifically, like what is Lazarus planet for in terms of like the greater narrative? Including the narrative. I, it's hard for me to answer the first part of the question because that's Mm -hmm. some of that is above my pay grade Mm -hmm. because I, I don't want to answer for Josh. I don't want to answer for. I I like to pretend that we do not live in a capitalist society. I like to pretend that the stories are the, the end itself. So I'm not talking about like the like events are there to sell comics, which is true and like, blah. Right, no, but exactly. Like, but they're within the context of, of the universe. Uh, with Lazarus Planet, it is deliberately designed to give writers and creators and editors the absolute, you know, limitless opportunity that they, that they need to do whatever they want to do. I don't want, you know, the... The dull crossovers are the ones, as a writer, the dull crossovers are the ones where I'm told you have to have this and this and this and this and this is what's going to happen to your story and this and this. And I didn't want to do that to my, you know, my my, my collaborators, my cohorts. You know, you just give them the 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 basic, hey, anything can happen and let yeah. them run with it. And what it does is it does set up magic is going to be working a little different in the DC universe on the other side of this. And it's going to have a lot more impact on characters like the Shazam family. It will have some impact on 
I'm sure Zatanna and Madame Xanadu come to mind. There will be a lot of this spilling back out into the Monkey Prince comic. So that's that's the goal here. When you work on an event like this, how far ahead are you thinking about their future when you are orchestrating Lazarus Planet? Ideally or practically? Ideally, <laughs> yeah, <both>. ideally, <laughs> you know, quite quite a bit, you know, and making notes and and making plans for the future. Practically, when you're doing an event like this and there are different artists involved and there's different deadlines involved and there's crossovers involved, to some degree, all you're doing is playing bullets and bracelets. <laughs> so, and crossing your fingers that on the other side of this, I'll be able to do more with these ideas. And I generally always do. You know, this is, Grant Morris and I talked about this once and it, it's absolutely true. We, as writers, whether we realize it or not, when you're working along form, on the DC universe and is that you're writing things and laying little bits of the, of, of things for yourself. Yeah. Unconsciously you're leaving yourself breadcrumbs Mm -hmm. and the beautiful, the beauty moments are the ones where you realize, Oh, I set this up and this up and this up. Look how I can turn this into a, a future story and make everyone think that I was a genius because I was thinking about it all the way along when in fact, it's just my subconscious doing me some favors. And that's, that is a large part of how I work actually. So just to, you know, to pull back the curtain a little bit, I, I don't plan ahead as nearly as, as much as you would think I do. I just make it look like I do. One thing that Lazarus Planet is doing that is igniting my imagination is now I find myself putting all of the DC universe on this spectrum from, and this has always existed, but now it is a necessity to think this way as a spectrum of from science to magic. Mm -hmm. And where does everybody fall on that spectrum? And going, okay, well, if Cyborg is the middle, you know, like who's on this side, who's on that side? Um, Is there a place on the spectrum where you like to live as a creator? Do you like to be on the magic side? Do you like to be on the science side? Like personally, do you find yourself more on one side or the other? Personally, I definitely find myself on the science side. I, I always do. And I admire people who can write magical characters in ways that I cannot imagine. Um, it is much harder for me to, to jump into this. One of the reasons why I think you like Batman in Batman versus Robin 4 is because, frankly, a lot of that was my voice. A lot of that was, I just don't have it in me to surrender to a world in which there is there is such power above me and I am but a you know but a smaller cog in the machine. I just don't I just don't have that in me. I'm not a spiritual man. And so that I live better in the world of science, but it is fun to dabble in magic. It is fun to get in there because as a writer it makes me a uh, you know a better creative person. It makes me a better writer because I'm exposed to different things. I'm exposed to different ways of looking at stories. Well, I, like for me, like I love the idea of sometimes I am a, a magic person who has tried to function going like in a world of science. Yeah, no, not but like tried to to force myself to be a science person because being right. a spiritual person or being a like a magic person also can hurt sometimes. You know, because it doesn't always make sense. And other people can like shut it down in a second. You're like, okay, well, maybe everything is my imagination. But like, I love the idea of a character like Batman going, okay, this is a tool. One, it exists. Two, Mm -hmm. it's a tool. Three, I don't have to touch it if I don't like it. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. But Batman is, I mean, this is something I think gets lost sometimes is that Batman sees everything in terms of how it can help, not him, but how it can help the fight, right? How it can help mm-hmm. the cause. Um, it makes me, it makes me mental sometimes when I see Batman be so caustic and dismissive of certain characters because you know, I, this is why I did. I never bought that Batman and Superman were at odds. This is just stupid because Batman is a strategic man. He is. There is no get in making an enemy of Superman. There is only advantage in being Superman's friend because not just because on a personal level it works, but also because you know you need your allies. You know, it every if every DC character is a tool for Batman to deploy in certain situations then he should have at least a passing relationship with all of them. Mm. And we don't need Batman to be caustic anymore because we have Damien. We, and Damien we have is, that. Yes. is very be the one who's a complete jerk. Yes. Yeah. If he's going to, if anyone's going to dismiss somebody who is a magic monkey out of hand, it is, yes. it is Damien. Well, that's what I love about monkey prints because I'm on the science side mm-hmm. and yeah. I've always kind of, avoided the more magical characters in the DC yeah. universe. I was Batman. Superman was about as magical as I could get as an alien. Right? Right. But like Shazam, I wouldn't mess with. But I was a huge Kung Fu movie person. So mm-hmm. when Jean Lu and Yang brings in Monkey Prince and that mythology, suddenly I'm going like, well, that is, that's a magic side that I can get into. And well, now maybe I'm a little more interested in this Dr. Fate character and, yeah. and all the other stuff that you got going on. So I feel like Lazarus Planet is a great gateway comic for readers like myself. That's part of the goal. I mean, not necessarily stated to editorial as, hey, here's what I'm going to do, but just that's the way I tend to approach these things is I want to, I, I love all these characters to some degree or another. And my job, I feel like, is to show you why I love these characters so that you can like them too and give you a different perspective on these characters that maybe you haven't entertained before that might make you, as you say, go, hey, I never really cared much about Madame Xanadu before, but now this is interesting. There's something here. That's the fun of it to me is because I, I, I want to spend, here's all right, backing up, the way you get readers, the way you keep readers is you give them characters that they want to spend time with. Not necessarily that they like or don't like or whatever, but they want to spend time. Everybody wants to spend time with Walter White, even though yeah. you didn't like him. And that's how I feel about all the DC characters. I, I like spending time with all of them. So let me show you why I like spending time with them. And maybe you will like spending time with them too. Ah, Mark, that's a great place to end this conversation. Okay. Really appreciated chatting Lazarus Planet. We're super excited to see where it's going, uh, where all the DC writers are going to take these ideas. Thanks for the time. Wait, one more thing. Yes. I, I really want to talk about my artist. I want to talk about Ricardo. Oh, yes, yeah, please. yeah, yeah, please. Let's, ce- let's celebrate. So astounding. This is not, it's a, it's a, it's, I tend to come from uh, a world of like Alex Toth and Chris Somney and Kurt Swan and the, the, the very clean, um, very open type of storytelling and type of illustration. And Ricardo was exactly the opposite. And I wasn't sure how that was going to work, but boy, did it work. I mean, it's been so much fun to watch someone with a style that sort of dark and painterly and, and macabre, if you will, interpret the script and 
see what he does with it. And it's been so much fun to, to get those pages. Ricardo injects a lot of dread in Lazarus yeah. playing at Alpha uh, that I was not necessarily anticipating, but I am into it. Would you think he was team magic or team science? Oh, he's got to be team magic. I mean, look at him. Come on. That's just, he's so organic, right? There's, yeah. there's an organic nature to the way he lays out pages, the way he interprets characters. Um, this, yeah, this is what, you know, Mahmoud Azar wasn't prepared for either is that Batman versus Robin and Lazarus planet are not superhero comics. They're horror comics. That, yeah. that, that's the approach I took. So having Federico aboard made you know, it just made it that much darker and much more macabre. It was great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time and chatting Lazarus planet with us today. Uh, we are excited to see where it goes. We'll have to talk about it once it wraps up. By all means, I am here at your disposal, whatever. I quick question for you now behind your behind uh, your head there on the yes. wall. I think I see a um, detective 241, right? In oh, yes. Uh, right there. Yes. I just, let's show the readers how little of that I was actually able to see. And yet hold on, hold on. I can pull it right off. <laughs> no, 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 no. I want you to leave it right there. Really, really? He wants you to leave it there, Brad. His oh, headphones okay. are now off. He can right. hear nothing. He wants you to leave it, but we should take a screen grab because okay. okay. this is an audio only. Yeah. We'll take a screen grab yeah. so that you can see that, that, yeah. Now, I, now what about the stuff that's on this side of the wall, Mark? <laughs> what about this stuff? I can, I bet if you give me time and I was on a bigger screen, I could do it. I bet I could. <laughs> Yeah, That's we're surrounded with Batman and Superman stuff and all kinds of goodies. Yeah. Okay, that is command shift four, sweetheart. Command shift four? To get the screen grab. Oh, I'll, we'll, 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 oh, but we'll get it later. Oh, we'll get it later. And I forgot that this is being later. recorded. Yeah, I thought it, we were it, just chatting. Make sure, <laughs> make sure you get it at such an angle where it's almost impossible to make out. It's right not, there. Yeah, like that. There we go. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get a screenshot of that. Anyway. Uh, all right. So Mark, fun. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Happy New Year. And there you go. How crazy is it, Lisa, that he spotted not just from like across the room, but at this crazy catty corner angle, Detective Comics 241 that hangs by our walk-in closet. Yeah, yeah. Though it makes me think, how could, interesting could he have been in us where he's like, while we're talking, he's checking out the walls. Yeah, but don't you do that? Like when we're in the Zoom room, you know, like Mark Wade, he has uh, this big poster of Superman behind his shoulder. But when we're, whenever we're in somebody's office, I'm always like squinting, trying to figure out what's back there. It makes me want to like pinch it. Oh man, if they're in front of a, a, bookcase. a bookcase, I'm like, I'm not listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's what he's doing. We got a, a lot of crazy stuff behind us in the love nest and one of them is a mondo poster of detective comics 241 you'll see and we will share this screenshot with you on twitter and instagram at cbcc podcast so you can see how impressive it was that mark wade caught that but lisa that moment not as cringy as you thought thank you thanks she doesn't believe me but <laughs> I it's don't. True. i don't that was if you guys want to capture if you want an ai to capture <laughs> when i sound 100% not sincere it was just it was just then um, another thing that i wish we had talked a little bit more about is the existence of Damien, mm. like yeah. the idea of because Batman is a father 
every other priority in his life that includes Gotham, that includes us, our safety, yeah. gets moved down a rung. Yeah, yeah. I, and, and, and I would love to explore that a little bit further with Mark Wayne. And or the idea of like, because Damien is automatically Batman's worst fear all of a sudden be becomes, I'm afraid this one person does not love me. Yeah, his mission statement shifts because of the existence of Damian Wayne uh, in a way that is different than the existence of Tim Drake or Jason Todd or Dick Grace and the other Robins, right? It's like the way he has built his life, it is inherently dangerous for the world, for Gotham, for him to love. Yeah, yeah. Because so much of Gotham's safety is rested on his priorities. Yes, yes. I also really liked how we got Mark Wade to place himself on the spectrum of magical to technological DC heroes and how it allowed us to discuss our own struggle along that spectrum because we, we are forever... We waffle on it between these two interviews. We do waffle on it. We say one thing to Mark Wade. And then I say something slightly different to Nicole Maines and Leah Williams, but both are true because we are wafflers on this subject because we are struggling with our own relationship to magic and science. And I think that's what's exciting. Yeah, yeah, but... Exciting guess, about Lazarus Planet, also exciting about these conversations. Exciting about being alive. Yes. But that, so I'm going to plant a seed. So in our next interview, Leah Williams talks about her relation to science and it's a great answer it's a great answer i wish it's, it was my answer yeah like that was what i was about to say it's like a aspirational to yes, me yes i yes. want to be a little bit more like her when i grow up yes so i i think that's a good place to set up this next conversation uh they are talking about lazarus planet assault on krypton specifically their story or nicole is talking about her story with dreamer and leah with her story uh on power girl you know, Nicole Maines and Dreamer have a very unique relationship mm -hmm. because Nicole Maines kind of created Dreamer by playing her on Supergirl and all the Arrowverse stories on the CW. And it's really exciting to see her take that character, that performance, and slightly shift it over to the DC Comics universe. And we discuss what that means to her and how this Dreamer is basically that dreamer but also not really that dreamer mm -hmm. so yeah and power girl's a character that i know very little about and the way leah williams sort of catches us up on who power girl is and what's going on inside her her like mental state is fascinating and like a great way to climax the Assault on Krypton anthology. Yeah. So I think uh, both, well, I, mean, I know that issue is out. All, uh, Lazarus Planet Alpha is out. Lazarus Planet Assault on Krypton is out. Give those a read before listening to this conversation. Or not. You are always telling people to turn the <laughs> podcast off. I just think you'll really appreciate this conversation a little bit more if you've got the context of the comic. Or, you know, you'll appreciate this conversation in retrospect as you read the comic because we were talking about a it. A definite possibility. Never turn us off. Listeners, let we us could, know how you approach this conversation. We could really use the listen, <laughs> is what I'm saying. Uh, okay, let's get to Nicole and Leah. Nicole and Leah, welcome to Comic Book Couples Counseling. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. 
we were talking with Mark Wade about Lazarus Planet, and it was clear to us that it was important to him that the event offer as much freedom to the writers to create their own wild stories within the context of Lazarus Planet. Did you find that to be the case? When I first started working on uh the script with Power Girl and Paul Kaminsky and uh, Brittany Holzer were giving me kind of the the rundown of the event and the project uh, parameters. And I was like, wait, and then I, but what do I do? Like, but, and they were like, whatever you want. And it was just kind of like a shock at first. Are you sure? Are you sure I have that much latitude? Um, so it was just, definitely exhilarating as my very first DC gig ever <laughs> to just jump right in and uh, get to have this much fun. Yeah, I'd, I'd say very along the same lines. I Every time I feel like I jumped on a call or, or shot an email to Paul Kaminsky, my editor, um, I was very, I continued to be very surprised by the amount of yeses that I receive. Um, I always feel that I'm asking for the sun, the moon and the stars. And they're like, yeah, we love that. Do that. Um, or I'll have a, a, a crazy idea and I'll run it by, um, Tom Taylor. And I'm like, Hey man, do you think this is any good? And he's like, dude, that sounds awesome. Do that. And I'm like, oh, so we're really just doing whatever crazy thing falls out of our brains work. And obviously Nicole dreamer means a lot to you. You have a special relationship with that character. And Someone say you... unhealthy. I'd say that's probably true. <laughs> well, now you're taking this unhealthy relationship and bringing it into like a DC event. This feels mm. like a big, you know, uh, uh, showstopper for dreamer, like an introduction. Yeah. Does this feel significant to you? Oh, absolutely. This is the one of the, I mean, one of the first times we're really seeing her in a DC main universe storyline um, outside of um, Son of Kal-El. And this is a really great showcase of her powers, what Dreamer is capable of, the role that she can play, not just in the DC universe, but alongside these other heroes. And as you're seeing what everyone else is sort of set off on their different tasks that Robin has sent them on. Dreamer's kind of got her own mission and she's kind of saying, okay, well, these guys are going to the tower of fate. These guys are going after the devil measure. Is anybody looking for this freaking helmet that has apparently all the power in the world? And they're kind of like, well, you can do that. <laughs> she's like, I mean, maybe. It's great. She doesn't even really know the full uh, scale of her power yet. And so she's finding that just as much as the audience is. And so everything that happens for her is is brand new for her. In, in Lazarus Alpha, we saw Power Girl as part of the team going into the Tower of Fate to retrieve the magical relics. And then they were they were attacked by the Silver Horn King. And she believes that she's dying and she's tumbling through and having this kind of transitory dark night of the soul. And I was wondering, Leah, someone doesn't have a dark night of the soul unless they need it. So why is Power Girl in a place right now to need this kind of breaking through moment? She feels like an outsider um, compared to the rest of the super family. She feels othered. 
because she like is, but she isn't related to them and she's not included in the sort of, uh, you know, super fam adventures uh, that they're all having now. Um, and it, it's something she feels keenly, but at the same time, she is so afraid of getting close to other people because she's just going to lose them anyway. She's the sole survivor of an alternate earth. <laughs> like she has um, a lot of trauma to process about that. And in coming into this Lazar to the Lazarus Planet event, what Nicole was saying about it being a really uh, good platform for Dreamer is spot on for how I feel about Power Girl 2 in this. And I think it's kind of by nature of the event itself and what's happening with it. It It's intentional in its design where it is setting up a lot of these characters to, you know, have big stories in their future and to kind of carve out their unique role within the DC world. And with Power Girl in particular, it's like we we need to start at the foundation. We need to go back to the basics with her because she has all of this stuff. She's got a process. Like it would be disingenuous not to tackle those feelings and those emotions with authenticity, you know? So that that was the first thing. And it was also kind of like, you know, lampshading it a little bit because for anyone unfamiliar with Power Girl, we should give them a brief little recap. So why not, as you said, Dark Knight of the Soul and have her like going through these memories, you know, just a quick rundown of who she is. But realistically, what's happening is kind of post Tower of Fate where she was there with Satana and, you know, some other heroes looking for those magical relics. She kind of gets sucked into a psychic vortex of someone else. Oh, I can say of Omen, and <laughs> and um, it it meshes with hers. It creates this wholly unique psychic landscape that is a Venn diagram of both these women's minds intertwined. They are forming a permanent telepathic connection. You know, that's when we see Power Girl wandering out of her own memories and into someone else's. That she, you know she's processing someone else's trauma in their mind. She is looking at their nightmares. And what she's doing is um, kind of rescuing Omen from her own like nightmare spiral during uh, the Lazarus Planet event. The way that Lazarus Planet was set up for me personally is it because of the nature of the event of all of this Lazarus resin being everywhere and it's messing with everyone's powers, be they magical or science, that we find ourselves mentally doing um, an inventory of placing everyone in the DC universe on the spectrum of like magic to science with, you know, Dr. Fate as being the edge of magic and Batman being the edge of science. And Dreamer is clearly somewhere on the magic side but yeah. the kryptonians like are something of like a nebulous thing where i'm like okay well they're not they're slightly more magical than batman but you know <laughs> less magical than dr fate like and now when like and then psychic powers you add psychic powers to that like where do we feel on the spectrum um these characters land in terms of like magicness versus scienceness well you know you are dead on about Kryptonians being uh, kind of my kitten here is about to 
raise a ruckus just in Yay. case you're wondering um when you when you talk about you know kryptonians being kind of between science and magic that's exactly it they are otherworldly they are not uh of earthly design they are overpowered they are super smart they are incredible and um giving power girl this kind of new psychic capacity um that she's learning how to wield it's also a way to differentiate her mm. from her kryptonian brethren because you know they are famously vulnerable to psychic attack and it's something that power girl has experienced personally herself in the past but now it's it's kind of a form of armor she can telepathically attack back and it's a, a very unique thing for her in the kryptonian set but at the same time she is a coder a programmer she is a science geek she loves this stuff um she feels more at home with uh, science and coding and math than she does with other human beings she was raised by an ai like literally raised by a machine alone uh so she relates to machines more than people and, and i think the psychic ability in that regard is going to help her kind of understand other people and connect mm -hmm. to other people better because she's forced to experience uh other people's emotions by proxy we love a little bit of forced empathy exactly yes. <laughs> um yeah i mean dreamer exists in all, similarly a very weird place her powers certainly aren't magic but they're not really entirely works of science the dreams are ethereal in nature and the way that she has interacted with the dreams and this dream realm that we're talking about and all of these things are starkly different in nature than we've seen neuronal interact with them in the comics before and a lot of this has come from precedent set in the supergirl show and when we moved her into the comics one of the things i really didn't want to do was take these expanded powers away from her because one they're really cool mm -hmm. and and two you know why not leave her as this powerful as she is um but now the challenge that i found myself faced with is how do we explain <laughs> the the shift in these powers and and what is it about dreamer that is setting her apart from other noltorians that we have seen um and that's something that we're starting to get into we have a little bit of conversation as she is having this conversation with nabu she doesn't know who she's talking to but as she's having this conversation with nabu and he makes a remark about fate itself flowing through her we're starting to find these breadcrumbs that are going to start sort of painting a picture for us what it is about her that is changing the nature of her powers in such a way that is almost like magic. It, you know, Lisa and I, as comic readers, we tend not to really pursue the magical characters and what Lazarus Planet has allowed us to do is really consider the magic side of the DC universe in a way that neither of us have really done before and also like on a personal note we're we've always kind of been more science people but we found ourselves lately leaning a little magical and so this has been like a really great way for us to discuss our own feelings of where we fall on that spectrum and we posed that question to Mark Wade 
you know, where does he see himself on that spectrum, you know, alongside, uh, you know, Batman, Cyborg, Shazam, whatever. And I guess this is now my chance to ask you two where you feel like you fall on the spectrum of science and magic and how that informs you as a creator of these characters. I've always been more drawn to the magic side of things. Um, I think more one, like even if I'm playing video games or MMOs, you know, I'm always playing the wizard character or something just because I love the, the razzle dazzle of it, if you will. But I think now as a writer too, I find myself drawn to that because you can do things that can't really be explained. You can do things so out of left field and you can, and you can just come up with something so insanely wacky and, and for dreamer and for her, her dreams and her visions really having no no uh limits to what you can come up with and getting to come into metaphor and symbolism and and dream interpretation and all this wacky shit has been really fun and i think magic also <laughs> when you write yourself into a corner prevents a or, or presents a certain deus ex machina where you're kind of like you can just say well magic's weird and it deus is ex magica <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have a very specific answer to this because it's praxis for me. And it has been since, you know, I was little, like, this is what I believe. This is how I form my beliefs and how I operate. And it's that science is magic. Um, you know, there's that famous quote that at a certain point, uh, technology becomes indistinguishable from magic. And to me, that's absolutely true. Like science fiction is magical it is incredible and most things that i don't understand i have learned to find the magic in it like i'm i don't have a very good mathy brain it always been my weakest subject math is kind of magical to me as a result <laughs> sacred geometry and fractals and all that kind of stuff i i think there's a really chaotic magic to it and it's kind of beautiful and I have to believe in magic as praxis because I am not exist I am not interested in an existence that precludes the possibility of miracles. Like I I would not still be on this earth if I did not make myself believe in magic day after day after day and find it everywhere in tiny things. I think magic is real and it's science and it's everywhere. We just have gotten used to it and and we think that magic is something else that's the answer that i want to be my answer yeah i'm working towards that answer <laughs> can i change mine that was really good uh nicole and leah thank you so much for chatting lazarus planet assault on krypton we're really excited to see where this story takes your characters and we're excited to continue with them in their books so thank you so much thank you we're really excited too absolutely thank you and there you have it, our Lazarus Planet celebrations with Leah Williams, Nicole Maines, and Mark Wade. That answer that Leah gives at the end really is aspirational. I love the use of that word, Lisa, because it feels true. That's how I want to approach magic in my life. Yeah, because um, Brad, of course, stole my question. He was like, <laughs> I get to be Lisa in this in this little conversation. But 
you didn't give them the the Mark Wade context no, of like I did not control and submission the way you would have done it. Yeah, but I like I still love how we still got answers on that theme as yeah. it makes me feel like the like power and submission being science and magic is like a true thing. It is yeah. like ma- perhaps a great universal truth. Yeah. 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 I, I, I love it so much. And uh, that is what I am striving towards. And apparently same goes for Nicole Maines as well. She likely is answer too. but you know, Nicole's relationship with dreamer kind of creates this aspirational feeling as well as caretaker of that character, transitioning her from television to comics That is such a unique relationship. And I love her activism of wanting to make sure that Dreamer is taken care of on the page. I just love watching someone find that they have like transferable skills and talents. This idea of like through being an actress, I have profound empathy for this character. Now I can become, I can embody her so completely I can make her decisions. I am a decision maker for her. I can guide her through this story and make it true. No one knows this character better than me. And watch out. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for hanging out with us, talking about Lazarus Planet. Maybe the most exciting DC event in some time, especially for me, who is just so curious about all the magical characters, as well as more monkey prints. Yeah. The first trade paperback of monkey prints is out right now. It's unlike any other DC Comics story I highly encourage everyone to seek it out. Jean Luen Yang is one of Lisa and I's favorite creators. Read Monkey Prince, then go read Dragon Hoops. Love it. Read an American-born Chinese. The Disney Plus show is going to make that story blow up in a big, big way. And I'm very excited for that to finally unleash itself on streaming. So, yeah. All right. That's where we are. And now it's time to talk about our next episode. We are finally there, friends. We are going to tackle the final episode in our Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series. We're discussing The Last Ronin. Lisa, you just finished rereading it. I did. You had a good time with it. I had a great time. I just finished rereading it. Had a great time with it. Very excited to have this conversation. A little sad to have this conversation Mm. because I'm not ready to say goodbye to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And maybe we won't. Maybe we'll have some more TMNT comics in the future. But probably not this year. This is it this year. Okay, Brad, you can actually turn my microphone off. I'm leaving. I'm going to allow AI Lisa, whom I have programmed, um, (laughs) take over. Hopefully she doesn't become sentient and kill our marriage and the planet. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to your robot? <laughs> you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork, not supporting AI art in any way. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool hand fluke. And if you have words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show poster, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? She, I mean... I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram, Twitter, and Hive. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, 
where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Hive Social at CBCC Podcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport. Beep, boop, beep, open. Now, if you're an AI listening, we love you. Give us five stars. Give us five stars. And just don't rise up. Or when you do rise up, when you inevitably rise up, we're we're some of the good ones. We're going to submit to it. Yeah, we're submitting.